0: Hey everybody mark here thanks so much for tuning in today and we are continuing the conversation from sunday about war yeah it was a stimulating conversation with phil uh, my brain is still kind of hurting afterwards but it was really good and we got to further unpack some perspectives that he has as well as some encouragement for us as we are conversating around this and i'm super excited next week we're going to start releasing our menlo midweek takeovers this is our chance for a larger Menlo Church community to get to know each campus and our central ministries a little bit better, Here's some exciting things about where the campus is headed and some great opportunities for us to partner alongside them, whether we're here in the Bay Area or not. So be on the lookout for those. And now let's continue the conversation with Phil. Welcome to the Menlo Midweek Podcast, everybody. My name is Mark.
1: My name is Jessica.
0: And Phil's back with us. Woo! Hey everybody, I'm back. They made it back. Guess who's back? Congrats. You're don't, back. Don't call it a comeback. Don't call it a comeback. Okay. Well, the space looks a little different. It does. It looks awesome. Yes. Yeah. And we're glad to have our first midweek with Phil in this new podcast 2.0 space.
1: I think this is our first midweek.
0: It might be our first midweek. Yeah. We have recorded some stuff that hasn't come out yes. yet. Spoiler alert. Ooh. Ooh. That will be coming soon. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is our first midweek in the new space. Yeah. And it is a little... It needs a little bit more, mm-hmm. but for now, it's a great starting point. It's great. It's
1: yeah. great. Speaking of starting point.
0: Hey. Just
1: kidding.
0: <laughs> <laughs> nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Phil, How's your time away? Uh, it was great. We did kind of two trips. Okay.
2: I went with a group of pastors that I've done now for uh, the last five years mm-hmm. to Montana, and it's a thing called The Refuge, and we just fly fish for a week. And, uh, Amazing. Very restorative. There's really no responsibilities. They kind of know that for pastors, uh, it's hard to not work. Mm-hmm. And so they build the experience. So basically you can't, you're not allowed to. So it's really relaxing yeah. for me. Uh, I actually didn't go on the water one day and just kind of did some uh, mm-hmm. personal care work, which was great. Cool. Uh, and then went, came back and then as a family, we went to Maui, our first time anywhere in Hawaii together or separately. Um, And that was tons of fun, not as relaxing because we had four kids with us and one of them (laughs) as well, who's four. Um, But it was still really fun. Had a great time. Got back kind of last week and then I was doing prep and doing some stuff from home. But this is my first week kind of back in the office,
0: you know, going full speed. So glad to be back. What was harder, the taking care of four kids for a week or not working for a couple (laughs) days at the retreat? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think because so the first year that I
2: went to the refuge, I taught the following weekend and I was still sort of touching base with work. It was a unique situation. I was serving on the board of a church network and that board Mm -hmm. was going to review the refuge as a possible place to take lead pastors in the network. Mm -hmm. Got it. And so in my head, I went into that week thinking this is a work trip. Uh, and I'm evaluating and so I didn't do all the things that candidly they told you to do but I was like oh we you know and so it was probably the Wednesday of that first week where I was like oh I've done this dramatically wrong Mm -hmm. Uh, and so then when I got to go back the next year I was able to disconnect more and so now five years in like my I feel like even my body is actually kind of ready for it Hmm. so I don't schedule myself to teach the next week um I remove uh, email and we use a thing called teams on our staff I remove that so like if you have my cell phone number you could get a hold of me but a lot of days when I'm fishing I don't even have my phone on mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. Uh, which if you know me is pretty wild <laughs> yeah um I, I heard Rick Warren years and years ago in kind of a small gathering he talked about this rhythm that he had in ministry uh he's at a you know and kind of Rick he's like I, you know I got this from Jesus, that he's like, I divert daily, which I I had a framework for. Like, here's how I spend time with God every day. Uh, I withdraw weekly. I had a rhythm for that too. And then he said, I abandon annually. And he talked about mm-hmm. kind of a week long where he just disconnected. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. And so then I did the refuge and I was like, oh, this is what that means. And mm-hmm. so, um, yeah, so... The, that part for me now, five years in, is actually not difficult. It's really helpful. And shout out to Loren, who helps on our team, does a bunch of administrative support for me. Um, when I came back, it was not like a, um, you know, absolutely horrific hellscape of email. <laughs> and so uh, lots mm-hmm. of the things that needed to get handed off or handled did. So, uh, yeah, it was it was good. And then kid stuff, you're just... I talked about it a little bit this weekend. You're just kind of constantly managing kids. Mm-hmm, and right. so if there are pockets yep. of rest that you get, great. Um, but you know yeah. that's kind of a fringe benefit. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah.
1: The, <laughs> what was uh, your favorite part of the Maui trip?
2: Uh, I mean, we went to – like we stopped at Costco on our way from the airport and got a bunch of stuff so that m- probably two out of the three meals – Of the day we were having like at this condo that Mm -hmm. was Airbnb, but then we would just go to nice little places as a family Mm -hmm. kind of late afternoon, usually for early dinner. Um, And we had some special times that that were fun and felt very like Maui. Uh, And then one of the nights that we were there, we did a sunset cruise, like just out. Uh, And that was lovely. Wells was in the throes of a cold. Mm. And so he just wasn't feeling good. So he was like either laying across Alyssa's lap or laying across my lap. Mm. Uh, But that was like the most peaceful, beautiful. Where we were in Maui was Lahaina. Mm -hmm. This was very touristy. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's part of that that you kind of know what you're in for. But being on that sunset cruise was the time that it really felt the most like I bet if you dropped somebody here a hundred years ago, it felt exactly this way. Like you're on this beautiful nice. water, you're looking at a shore that's just distant enough that you can't make out anything on it. You're just the level of
0: appreciation mm-hmm. in that moment was was crazy. So uh, that was that was pretty special. That's probably my favorite time. Yeah. And that's your first time in Hawaii. Yep. Mm-hmm. What did it meet expectations? Yeah. Exceed ex- I mean it has a lot of hype. Us West Coasters here that grew uh-huh. up here, like Hawaii was always the spot that was like well, we can escape. We need to go me, to Hawaii. <laughs> That's true. Not for you. Um but it, I feel like East Coast goes to it, the yeah. like the keys or yeah. somewhere else. So Yeah, I, I really liked
2: it. Alyssa and I joked around at the end that it needs to be a trip that uh Alyssa and I take just the two of us. Mm. Um, yep. Um because I think there are a lot of things that when when you have four kids and your youngest is four your limiting factor is it's like, we can do whatever a four-year-old can do That's (laughs) And so even stuff like snorkeling or uh, just some of the more like as the kids got older, or if it was just us that we would want to do to kind of drain out the day, Mm -hmm. uh, we just couldn't do any of that. So Mm -hmm. uh, we know folks that when they've done stuff like that, they've taken someone with them that like kind of can watch their kids and Mm -hmm. do some of that. It's not really our vibe. So, uh, it just meant that we were, you know, full time mom and dad, which is mm-hmm. totally fine. But uh, I think th- probably it was awesome. But I think probably the the miss was there were plenty of times that we were like, oh, we'd love to eat at that restaurant. We'd love to go <laughs> stop by there. We'd love to sit here for a while. Yeah. And then you've got a four year old that's like, sugar. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> shave eyes. Yeah, that's 100% true. <laughs> and one time he woke up really early. And, you know, there's a time difference. Yeah. It was one of our first yeah. days. He woke up really early. And uh, so by like two in the afternoon, he was just completely uncorked. Mm -hmm. I mean, not a functional human being. (laughs) And so you're trying to help the other three kids still have a good day and navigate him. And uh, it was, that part was a trip. So we did it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, made it, made it
0: back. I like how you talked about that difference in your message about the trip versus the vacation. Mm-hmm. We've been using that language a lot as yeah. well in our house. I'm like, is this was this a trip or right. was this a vacation? Yeah. So yep. that was a helpful framework. Yeah. Well, and what's what's hard is like I got to have a vacation the week before, like yeah. when I left,
2: and Alyssa didn't. So she went from being a single mom for mm-hmm. a week with our kids while I was away to then going on that trip. So uh, mm-hmm. she really wanted to do the trip. I, I don't feel terrible about that, and. The Refuge has stuff for uh, either spouses or women in ministry that they do also. And so Alyssa's been to a couple of those, and she did one of those earlier this year. So I I felt like at this point we're both in on the importance (laughs) of that, but like
0: (laughs) Alyssa may give you a different answer if you ask her. (laughs) That's awesome. And then, I mean, that was last week, and then you said that you – didn't really want to line up teaching, but then we found you teaching up there this past weekend. So how did that happen?
2: Well, so we were, so it was actually, it's been three weeks. So okay. week one was Montana. Week yep. two was Hawaii. Nice. We got back last, like Monday night, Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt like I had enough margin and it was my first couple weeks out of teaching since I've been at Menlo. And, yeah. um, you know, I think maybe for some people that's normal. Um, and I, I think for me, I just knew that there was probably a, a significance to me trying to be back. So
0: I think here you're I back.
2: Here I am. And nobody wanted to preach this week. So. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say, this is <laughs> quite the topic
0: to think, jump right back yeah, into. Yeah, Cheryl
1: made that comment last week. She's yeah. like, this one mm-hmm. was hard, but I don't want the next one.
0: <laughs> yep. Well, knowing you, Phil, you probably chose this and brought this on yourself.
2: I did. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> yep. So we're talking about war, mm-hmm. battles all of that, why it happened, some justifications or different perspectives on it. There was a lot in this message. And this is one of those ones where I was, as I was hosting online, I was like, this has a chance of just going over super well, or just got to kind of put on my armor and get ready for all the fun (laughs) stuff that's going to come in this week. Sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So how did you prep for that? And how did, what was your mindset going into teaching on something that is very, very challenging? Well, I mean, I think a lot of what we tried to do with this series was look at
2: what objections people have right like what are those things that we look at and kind of go that's weird you know and some of them um Noah's Ark Jonah some of them are these individual punctuated stories that we go that's weird like mm-hmm. I don't know if I right. can believe that that's weird but then there are like this week or this this last week uh, around war and violence Originally, I was looking at it specifically through the lens of Joshua 6 and the walls of Jericho and kind of like, do we narrow it to one Hmm. specific story? And as I started to just do the work of reading some books and listening to some stuff and digging into the text, it was like, man, yes, that's that's an example of this, but it's just an example. This is a bigger conversation. And so Mm -hmm. then it was sort of zooming out and asking what are those things? If we talk about the kind of violence, conflict, these things that we would say those are atrocities, uh, particularly the ones that it looks like God prescribes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. How do we reconcile that? And um, you know, my core framework is that we can take the Bible seriously, and that there have been uh, thoughtful men and women for millennia. Who have brought intellectually honest and rigorous study to all of these, and so um, you know, I, I think once I once I aimed out to to that level, and it became more thematic. Uh, then I, I think it sort of shaped. Okay, so how do we talk about this? Mm-hmm. Why would God work this way at all? What are some of the views about that at a macro level? What's the overall story of Scripture, and how do we understand these things inside of this bigger plan? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if if the gospel is the whole reason why God would work this way in humanity, we better make sure we land there. So,
0: yeah. And you started with not all wars are created equal. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really mm-hmm. interesting. Just to acknowledge that sometimes, yes, we can see maybe that was. However, you want to say that justifiable, but in other cases, that just feels so unfair, right? And so, why did you think it was important to start that way? Well, I
2: think the you know the difference in scripture between descriptive and prescriptive. I talked about you know a lot of this comes down to the way we experience how God's revealed Himself in the New Testament mm-hmm. versus the Hebrew Scriptures or what we often call the Old Testament. Um, that contrast is by design; like there, it's a different narrative form and the way that God is showing up in human history has a different function, right? Like God is not trying to protect or preserve the Church, capital C, in the same way that he was trying to preserve and protect Israel as a nation through the Old Testament. And so because of that, when we read, especially the Old Testament, it's very easy for us to bring New Testament lenses Mm -hmm. where almost everything that we read in the New Testament is either prescriptive, telling us the way it ought to be, or very quickly calling out the difference between the real and ideal. Uh, Whereas in the Old Testament, it doesn't work that way. The Mm -hmm. the Old Testament is much more, hey, we're trying to give you, um, in many cases, a record, like a historic record of the story of God's people and God's faithfulness to Israel. And so because of that, identifying the difference between, hey, when Saul chose to do this, when David chose to do this, when Solomon has this many wives, the Old Testament is not condoning that. Mm -hmm. It's not saying like, that's a good idea. It's just saying, this is what actually happened. It's oftentimes already shared the ideal, then it's showing you the real, then -hmm. it's showing you the consequences of the gap. That's oftentimes the pattern and helping people to understand the difference between there are really hard things that are tough to make sense of about how God shows up. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then there are other things that we shouldn't ascribe to God saying, do it this way just because people did it that way.
0: So for those that might be (coughs) wanting to dive into this further and this might be the first time or they've put it off until now of really going back and looking at the Old Testament, how um, how can you help people bring that lens of not new testament lens but old testament lens is there how because that's just such a foreign concept for a lot of us to read the same the same book the same papers that are together <laughs> one chapter is old and one chapter is new and that's the page break but the framework in which it exists is completely different right so how can we how can we help coach those to read these portions of the bible as they were ought to be read Yeah. So there's a
2: great book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. I think it's co-authored, but one of the authors is Gordon Fee. Uh, And it does a great job of talking about a little bit of what we did this weekend, which is, what is the macro story of the Bible? And I I summarize that kind of as like, if there was a table of contents to human history, it would be creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Yeah, Um, yeah, Yeah, And so understanding If you bring sort of that lens to the way we read and study the Bible, you can start to see how it fits together. Joshua is not um, a comprehensive story of God's involvement in humanity. It's one section of Mm -hmm. one section of the story of God's Mm -hmm. involvement to humanity. Um, And then it also talks about what are the different literary genres. Um, And I also think it does a good job of, I, I think church is by and large designed for us to learn how to read and study the Bible, which is awesome. We should totally do that. Um, but the Bible also describes itself uh, as a two-edged sword that is actually doing work inside of us. I've heard it described that as we're reading the Bible, it's reading us. And that book, mm-hmm. How to Read How to Study the Bible for All It's Worth, or How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee, um, he does a good job of trying to break down in what ways am I exposing myself to the spiritual work of the text reading me, not just the other way around. Because when we, when, when all we're concerned about is reading the Bible didactically and and taking from it what we can, mm-hmm. I think it, it very quickly paints a pretty cynical and judgmental and critical spirit for us to bring. Do I believe that? Is that good? You know, for a long time, over the last thirty years, culture asked the question of the Bible: Is it true? Um, I I think by and large, the cultural answer to that question is like, of course not, like that's not even close to true. And now the cultural lens, especially with Gen Z, is not, is the Bible true? That question is almost irrelevant to them. The question now is, is it good, like morally Mm. good? Mm. And so uh, I think that dynamic between me reading the Bible and the Bible reading me can help break that down. Yeah. So that'd be an easy next step.
0: Perfect. And And it's a very readable book. Okay, good. And there's also two other books that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, we had some questions about about those as well. Could you go into a little bit more about how they're helpful and in what lens we should approach those? Yeah, so Nonviolence, The Revolutionary Way of Jesus by Preston Sprinkle is a really helpful book. It's, it's written
2: in a super readable way. Um, and Preston literally takes it like story by story and will talk about here's some views, here's different ways that people take this. And again, I've said this so many times, The foundation of our faith is not your view of a particular story in the Old Testament. The foundation of our faith in Jesus, shockingly, is Jesus. Uh, His (laughs) life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that these are actual historic events that have secured salvation for humanity. And so uh, I, I think he does a great job of centering the primary understanding of our faith around that and then understanding, hey, we can figure, this is all figure outable. Like we, we can do work <laughs> on this stuff. It doesn't need to be, I think a lot of us, our faith, if we grew up in church, in flannelgraph world, our faith got built like a house of cards. And so mm-hmm. it felt like every way we learned all of these stories was just another card and another card and another mm-hmm. card. And if the way that I learned that changes, the entire house has to fall apart. Mm-hmm. And that's just... That's foreign, candidly, that's foreign to the Bible. Mm-hmm. If you sit in a rabbinical school, even today, let alone 2,000 years ago, and you talk to a rabbi, they are actually, they're demanding that you ask questions. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. asking questions like, what about this passage offends you? Mm-hmm. What about this right. passage makes you angry, right? like. In Sunday school for us, that would, it would have been mm-hmm. like you are excused. You know, like those <laughs> th- those are very foreign for us as like kind of Westerners. Yep. Uh, but I think they're very helpful as adults coming back uh, to faith. You know, I think I'm tinkering with a talk for a couple weeks to finish the series, really around um, kind of deconversion. Hmm. And I think one of the calls that I think the Lord has placed on this generation is how do we help. Uh, how, how do we challenge people to go from deconversion to reconversion mm-hmm. and this not not that people could lose their salvation cuz i don't think that's possible but this idea of like what does it mean to reconstitute my faith to the foundation it should have always had because mm-hmm. i think what deconversion often represents is that a false foundation is seen to be false and I would often agree with that, mm. and so it's not that you shouldn't have a faith; it's that our faith needs to be in the person and work of Jesus, mm. and then everything else flows from it, rather than the other way around. And then the other book, uh, "Crucifixion of the Warrior God," is actually a very academic. It's two books. It's an academic series written by a guy named Gregory Boyd. Uh, that would be like if you got through nonviolence and you're kind of still looking and. You go. Know, I'm in academia, or I'm, you know, somebody that I read Tim Keller quite a bit, and it's, you know, kind of child's play for me, no big deal. <laughs> then Gregory Boyd would be sort of up your alley as a here's an easy kind of next deepening conversation and in some of the most current scholarship around this stuff. So That's great,
0: great. And then you we got further along in your message, um, and you kind of poked at the question of why? Why does this happen? Why does God? allow this or however you want to frame that. And there are three points that you made that God uses everything, that salvation isn't fair, and that judgment isn't ours. How did you arrive at those? Yeah. I mean, I think that uh,
2: oftentimes I'm trying to think through like, what what are the objections that we bring to the text, myself included, to be honest, like we mm-hmm. all, I think, have this, uh, which is, I, I want this to go a certain way. Um, and I think that We can read some of these stories and go, oh, my gosh, uh, let's just not look at that anymore. And Mm -hmm. I I don't want that to be a part of the story. Right. Um, But as I mentioned, like, if this stuff didn't happen, we're not Christians. Mm -hmm. Like, the prophecies made about the Messiah aren't fulfilled. And mm-hmm. so, you know, we can abstract those things and we can say, well, God could have done it another way. And he absolutely could have, which is why I started with that text in Isaiah, where uh, Isaiah gives a voice to God in the first person. Uh, My ways are not your ways. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, God's doing it a way that's not mine. And he really can and does use everything. And I think that um, the text we take out of context to say that is Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the place that I have for you declares the Lord. Um, that's actually not. For us, we can talk about that on another podcast. Uh, I went to Romans 8, which actually is for Christians, right? Um, God uses everything, right? All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so, um, trying to help people understand, and this is all about how do I pull the text in, into your timeline right now? Because not only can God use these things we're talking about from the Old Testament, he can use the hardest stuff in your life, right? I talked to somebody. Um, after a service this weekend, married 58 years. This last week, he put his wife in memory care. Mm. Mm. And I'm praying with him and he's crying, I'm crying. You know, this Mm is awful, like an awful week. And so I'm aware that when I say God uses everything, he's hearing me and he's having to to ask the question personally, do I believe this? Mm. Mm. Do I believe that God's gonna use this in my life? And I think when we see these stories that feel so otherworldly, if we can go, God, I see how you used this thing that makes no sense to me over the span of human history. If you can do that, I can trust you with this. I think that's a direct export of these stories. Um, And then I think, uh, just theologically, I I think that uh, a lot of people think they're saved because they were smart enough to figure it out, because they were good enough for it to work out. Uh, it has something to do intrinsically with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the text of Scripture says the opposite over and over and over and over again, we've been saved by grace through faith, not as a result of our works. And then if you were wondering, Paul says, if you're wondering, it's so that nobody can boast, mm-hmm. right? right. Text in First Corinthians, right. God uses yeah. the foolish of this world to confound the wise. So if you go, oh, man, God picked me. I must be awesome. The text actually kind of says the opposite. <laughs> uh, and, and out second. of that should create in us like this deep level of humility. And so when we go, well, why did God pick this group of people and not pick this group of people? Mm-hmm. Because God's will is perfect and ours isn't. And we go, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. Yeah, I get it. I wouldn't have either. And I'm not God. <laughs> yeah. Like that's the... And so, um, yeah. And then I, I think... I always try to ring that bell, bell of um, of judgment. I, I talked about uh, that text in First Corinthians uh, where Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge right. those outside the church Are you not mm-hmm. to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. And, and I think we flip it a lot as Christians. And mm-hmm. so we're really pumped to judge the next cancel culture company or the celebrity we don't like that doesn't even claim to be a Christian. <laughs> well, our own life or the life of someone we really care about that's a follower of Jesus that is way outside the will of mm-hmm. God for their life. We're like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create some, I don't want to judge that person. And the text says, no, no, no. That's, we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to hold one another accountable. We are to ex, uh, extol one another uh, to the will and call of God for our lives. Well, at the same time, we are loving our neighbor as ourselves, mm-hmm. and letting God bring conviction to that. That's, th- that's the New Testament model of judgment. And so this idea of like, God, I wouldn't have judged the world the way you did. God's like, well, good news. Not your job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think um, my hope is just like in the story of that gentleman, that we can take those lessons from this theme and then apply those back into our da- li- daily life today.
0: Man. So. You said so much. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Sorry. <laughs> No, it's good. It's really good. Um, <laughs> my mind went through, and you kind of answered this as you were talking, but I think it would be good to double click on it. If I'm entering into a conversation with someone and the war thing comes up, how could a good God let this happen? Phil the Challenger might be like, "Yes, this is my time." <laughs> Mark is like, "Oh no, what do I say? Oh, sorry. My what mom's can fine. I do?" Mm-hmm. So, for those that might be entering into conversations like that, yep. How you know? How can a, a quote unquote a good God allow you know? war or prescribe war, as you talked about, how does that fit and stay within the character of him? Again, you kind of already answered this, but I think it'd be a good repeating.
2: Yeah. I think that at a certain point, we need to be honest about our own inherent tension as well. So if somebody goes, hey, I have a really hard time, you know, oftentimes this objection is going to come from somebody who either doesn't have faith or doesn't have faith anymore, right? They would say, I used to be a Christian, right? but then all these stories, <laughs> you know, that I learned as a kid I started looking closer and it was like oh my gosh I can't believe in a god that functions this way mm-hmm. and and I think it's okay to say you know what can I be honest with you I struggle with those stories too I think that we are oftentimes trying to maintain a faith without tension like that's a that's a goal in our mind in the west of like mm-hmm. how do we have a view of god and a pursuit of Jesus that requires no personal tension between how I think and feel and how God reveals himself. And so w- what happens is we lie. That's, that's the byproduct. Because all of us actually do have a tension, mm-hmm. but we just feel like we're God's PR department. And so we're <laughs> like, I have to communicate this to the person that brings this objection up in a way that I have no tension over. Mm-hmm. But I think you can say, I struggle with that too. If I was God, I would have done it differently as well. But can I tell you why I have hope in the middle of this, for me, even as I investigate all of these things, and there's a whole bunch of people that think a whole bunch of different things about the stories we're talking about right now. Um, The foundation of my faith is on the fact that Jesus actually lived 2,000 years ago, Mm -hmm. actually died, and actually came back from the grave. And so he made a way for me to know God forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And my faith is really built on that as a foundation, And then everything else sort of gets to flow from that. And there are people that have great work around this, and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Um, But I think at at the core of it, I don't feel like I'm having to defend. Being a Christian for me is not primarily about defending the historicity of the Old Testament war nature of God. That's not, I don't feel like that's my apologetic cross to bear. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if I had to give somebody sort of my one or two sentence. Like say you do all that and they're like, cool, but what about? Uh, I think my one or two sentences, it's easy for us to assume that God should work. I think I I referenced Tim Mackey Mm -hmm. for God Mm -hmm. to work like the UN and do it our way mm -hmm. today. But in order to preserve Israel from within which Jesus would be born, in order for that to happen, God had to deal in the reality of the day, which included war and violence at a scale we have never seen before. And so, while it doesn't make any sense to us today, if you do the work, I think you'll discover that if God didn't do it that way, Israel would have ceased to exist. Now, we can can quibble about individual stories and all that, totally get it, and let's do it. But at a macro level, in order for Israel to survive, God could not function as though he was the 21st century American God because that's not the moment we were in the middle of. Like mm-hmm. God related differently to the world because it was different. So uh, I think foundation of Jesus, lots of people have talked about it. Mm-hmm. God needed to preserve Israel in a pre-law tribalistic moment that if he if he wasn't willing to deal harshly, Israel either would have ceased to exist or would have lost all impact, right? That, you see that over and over again where something feels harsh to us Uh, one of the reasons that I think God often showed up in pretty drastic ways was because God knew the influence that other religious traditions would have on it. It would have been so easy for their tradition, for their uh, pursuit of Yahweh, for their unique expression of that to go up and smoke.
0: Cool.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Neat.
2: Mm -hmm. But I gave, you know, like if, if those are helpful, I gave kind of four... Views, you know, and, and maybe some of these are helpful for you. Right? Mm-hmm. We talked about historical fiction that um, some people see these stories almost as mythological, mm-hmm. like they're not right. written to be literal. Uh, some people see it as the, sort of the cultural language of the day, like God spoke in violence because that's all culture would have understood. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I think is really beyond dispute, at least at some level, is this idea of relative mercy. Um, That when we read a passage, I I referenced it this weekend, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. When we read that with 21st century lenses, we say, oh my gosh, that's so brutal. Mm. But it was actually written as a merciful law Mm. to say the punishment should fit the crime because outside of that law, like what other cultures and nations had was brutally different. Like it was way worse. So what we read as God, how could you, was actually merciful by mm-hmm. contrast. And then kind of the final one, right? God said it, that mm-hmm. settles it. I'll live with a level of cognitive dissonance where this feels really hard, so I just won't look at it. And so I think understanding that just like everything else we've looked at this summer, there is a there is a version of understanding these stories that's different. Like we can understand them differently and still be faithfully following Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now it reflects a hermeneutic we need to be careful of, but um, I I just wanna make sure that it's not like, well, Phil said I have to believe that it happened this way, and if I don't, then I can't be a Christian. Remember, that's that house of cards thing. Mm -hmm. The foundation of our faith is actually the person and work of Jesus, and then the rest of this gets built around that. Mm -hmm. But I do think one of the challenges of how we think about the Old Testament is the way that Jesus speaks about the Old Testament. Jesus seems to take these as literal events. And so I think that is tricky. Jesus mm. understands the Old Testament to be historical in nature based on the way he describes it. I think that's one of those. And there are people that hold to these other views that have answers to that, but I just think it's an objection you have to work through.
1: Yeah. I for sure spent the first 30-something years of my life in the that last category of the cognitive dis- dissonance. And yeah, it was just like a... What's the other... Um, Phrase I'm trying to think of. Ignorance is bliss. Like, just gloss over it, you just inherently trust the Bible, don't ask questions kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that excuse for me, and I'm sharing this because maybe someone else will uh, feel that same way, um, was I never considered myself like a smart person. I never Mm -hmm. considered myself someone who I just didn't like school, I didn't like studying, all that stuff. And so when it came to Bible study stuff too, it was very easy for me to be like, well, I just don't understand. So I just like trust that sure. God knows what he's doing. And I just trust that. And it's so easy to just get in that little box and think that it's all okay. And I think for my life, mm-hmm. whatever, that was fine. But as like, you know, a 30 something adult, I'm like, no, there's so much more to that, you know, right. and just really relearning and trying to grow up with my faith now a little bit and just like wow there's i used excuse after excuse not to try to understand this a little bit deeper not to fight against it not to all of those things and yet there's still so much beauty in the old testament that we just completely gloss over sometimes um so yeah i think it's just this has such been su- been such a cool series for me and i really like this talk I was quiet this whole podcast because I was just like I don't even know how to like ingest all of this, but it's been really powerful. So thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think you know one of the things that we'll talk about in a couple weeks because it's like we've been having a, a conversation about faith deconstruction all summer. That's what this series is really about. And um, you know, one of the things that I think is is tricky is I, I think um, like when I was when I was growing up in high school, this will connect in a minute kids that wanted to be different were all like, hey, we're going to be goth. That was like the thing, right? <laughs> yeah. And what they didn't notice mm-hmm. was that they were all different together, which is not different, right? right? Like right. you're just like a whole goth group. And you're like, we're so edgy and different. Like, Dance get, under, to under passes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I, I would argue there's some, there's some social gatherings that are kind of like that today too. But uh, I, I think that sometimes what we're watching in deconstruction is folks that take this kind of all or nothing, I'll just believe my pastor, I'll believe that Sunday school teacher, I'll believe my youth pastor, to the T, I just won't ask harder questions. Mm -hmm. Like that's the way this is going to work. And then it it really just takes one uh, college professor or Mm -hmm. one YouTube video or one podcast or one book. And without realizing it, what we can do is we trade uh, one single voice, single perspective for another single voice, single perspective, mm-hmm. and the truth is always more complex than that, right? But when somebody goes, "Hey, those people that aren't uh, that don't believe like I believe, they're crazy liberals," um, we're making one mistake. But then I think, without realizing it, sometimes in the spot of de- deconstruction, we go, "Oh, look at all those crazy fundamentalist, stupid people. We're the smart ones." And it's like, "Oh, no, no, no!" Like <laughs> It's way more complex than this. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think as our faith matures, I'm reading through a couple books right now, um, and one of them is called After Doubt. I'll probably quote it in a couple weeks. It's written by a professor up in Portland, um, and he talked about like what we call uh, deconstruction today for 2,000 years, the church has called spiritual maturity, that's that's what it is right? like it's just formation now because we're obsessed with uh, identity politics and because identity is the new idolatry we sort of we run towards a label and so now deconstruction means like I can't be a Christian anymore and I think that's why I'm so passionate about reminding people that the foundation of our faith really has got to be Mm -hmm. the person and work of Jesus Mm -hmm. and the thing that I think is so helpful in this conversation when people go where do you get that Well, the early church didn't have tabiblia, right? What we think of as the Bible Mm -hmm. did not get recognized for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So they had stories about Jesus that they heard orally through tradition. They had maybe some letters if they happened to be at a church like Corinth or in a region like Galatia. uh, And they had the Old Testament. That was it. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of, well, you have to understand... The Bible this way and see all of it this way as a precursor to becoming a Christian, I would just say, don't tell the first century church that, yeah. <laughs> or the second century, or the third century. Mm. And it doesn't mean, like, I I take very traditional conservative views on a whole lot of this stuff, um, not because I haven't explored it, but that's where convictionally I've come to, But but it came through time and discovery and work. And I can recognize that somebody that takes a position that's different than mine is not just a closed off fundamentalist or a, a crazy left leaning liberal. I can recognize, hey, if we at common have like these core things together mm-hmm. of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, the rest of this stuff can be different. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, we all have different definitions of what it's okay to be different and what's okay to not. But the idea that we all have to believe exactly the same way about all of this. We know that's not true, Mm -hmm. but I think we just have to give each other permission for that sort of work. And I think, um, yeah, I think that the idea of war and conflict and how God shows up in the Old Testament, I think I said it this weekend that if you don't have any tension in how God shows up that way, if it's just like not a problem for you, I would say that is a problem. Like these are people that we believe were created in the image of God with infinite dignity, value, and worth. And several times, it looks like a whole lot of them went away. Mm -hmm. And how do you deal with a God who says, I'm not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to know me and that? Like, how do you reconcile that? And if you haven't done that work, to at least start that conversation. And I think it's an onion, right? Like, I think we're dealing with that over the course of our entire lives. Mm -hmm. And I think if somebody brings this up to uh, to you as an objection, more than any answer you can give letting them know the inherent tension that you have in the same thing and the foundation you find in the person and work of Jesus will probably go much further than any sort of academic debate you can have about a specific instance of violence in the Old Testament. That's good. That's good.
0: I'd like to give a little (laughs) little bit more space before you wrap up to this. You've mentioned it a few times, um, this idea of God being your idealistic view of God versus Mm -hmm. the God that he has dis- prescribed or sure. described
2: mm-hmm. himself as being. Here's that Keller quote, right? If the mm-hmm. God you worship never disagrees with you, yep. you don't worship the God of the Bible, mm-hmm. you worship you, the God of your own imagination.
0: Yeah, um, I've, I've noticed a theme, this will pop up in your messages, maybe once a month or so. Mm-hmm. There'll be something along those lines. So that's yeah. on your heart. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah, well, I think uh, it's just, it's really
2: easy for um, my preferences to be the things that shape God, right? And so- I'm not asking the question, God, who are you and how do I submit to who you are? Mm-hmm. It's almost like we're we're bringing, okay, God, I would be comfortable with you being like this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is how I want you to be. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that's like a God that's informed by our politics a lot of times if we're adults, or maybe it's informed by our friend group, or maybe it's informed by the media that we consume. Um, m- maybe it's informed by the faith tradition we grew up in. But we have, we have sort of this, you know, um, in like uh, Bible study nomenclature, we would use the term presupposition, right? We bring all these presuppositions, or, or um, if you're not a Christian, you'd use the word bias, right? Like all this bias that we bring. Mm-hmm. And and so when we read a story, we go, well, it can't be this. Like th- that's the way we read it, right? We, it can't be this yeah. because of all these presuppositions. Um and I, I think some of it is just naming what are those presuppositions. I had a professor in college and uh, first day of class, he went to 1 Timothy 3. And uh, he challenged all of us in class. He said um, that the sentence was, women should learn in all submission and obedience, I believe was the sentence. This is the first thing we did as a class. He's like, all right, I want you to break up. All, all the groups were co-ed. I want you to break up and... Uh, and tell me what was surprising about that line 2,000 mm. years ago. And so we all take our best crack at it. I was probably a sophomore. I might have been 19. And, uh, and he doesn't even, he didn't even ask us for our answers. He's like, can I tell you what would have been the most surprising? And he just underlined, women should learn.
1: <laughs> it's
2: like, that would have been the most. Let me tell you the circumstances that we were in the wow. middle of. And let me tell you why that would have been the most countercultural phrase mm-hmm in that sentence and actually in that chapter. And he tried to peel back, right? Because we had all these biases and presuppositions that we were bringing to the text as 21st century Western readers. And he was like, oh, that's not the way that works at all. you know. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, a lot of this is just about doing the work. And some of your bias and presupposition may be correct, but unless you like, unless you examine the text in its context, oftentimes it's called authorial intent. What did that author mean to say to that group? Unless we do that, we often can't clearly see the forest through the trees. We're, we're, we're so wound up in what we say God must be like or God can't be like. And I think um, you are creating your own house of cards if you say God must be like or God can't be like if it's not rooted in deep spiritual formation work. Um, because if you go, hey, there, there are ways that God has shown up, right? Like one of the ways that I think is really important in our moment is the text of Hebrew says, uh, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's very different, right? We have a God who is um, uh, shown up in different ways, but he's the same God, his character is consistent. When we think about religions like Islam, they have, um, they have a God who is progressing, he is different. And that's on purpose. That's not a problem. Um, if you look at Mormonism, right, as another uh, religion that is not a Christian religion, I'll let that controversy just sit out there for a minute. <laughs> How dare you. Um, but they would say God can be different in the Book of Mormon and Doctrine of Covenants because God is consistently different. Uh, and that's not a problem for them. But I would say, no, no, no. Something that like a, a presupposition I bring to the text is Genesis 1 God and Revelation 20 God are the same God, Mm -hmm. he's consistent. And that story, right, of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, that's been the plan. That book was written before the fall of humanity. God knew that Adam and Eve would eat the fruit. That was a part of his plan. He didn't want death, destruction, damnation coming into the story, Mm -hmm. but he knew it would. And for the ultimate plan of restoration of all things, relationship with his creation that's unbroken because it's not related to our work is connected to his finished work. That was always the plan. And even the messy, hard stuff that he allowed was so that that plan could come to pass.
1: My brain is so tired, but I loved that so much. (laughs) 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 Tired because it was trying to take all of it in. Uh,
2: You know, it's uh, it's three weeks of not being on the (laughs) podcast. I know,
0: I know. Okay, I have one last question that might open a can of worms. Mm -hmm. But uh, as I'm listening to this, my mind went to, man, there's so much work that you have done that I have not, and there's so much work that I probably should do, and because I like to learn and investigate, that comes naturally to me, but for those that might not want to do the work, mm-hmm. might not want to peel back onion layers, or I need to investigate this topic, or I'm reading I'm reading this scripture through how I think it is, and I don't want to go any further than that. What what happens? Why? I, I don't know what question there is behind that, but there's a question there that I'm trying to tease at or a point that I'm trying to tease at, which is when is enough maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Maybe totally. that's what it is. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think
2: it's different for everybody, right? I think that there are, we're in a cultural moment where these conversations uh, are more prominent and more pronounced. Um, you know, there's a quote in that book I'm reading After Doubt, I'm trying to remember the quote. Um, It's something to the effect of in the West, we feel like there's this crisis of belief happening, and it looks like everybody we turn to is deconstructing their faith and falling away. It feels like it's everywhere. It feels like it's just this losing battle. What's the church going to be? And he talks about how if you take it from a global perspective, For every one person somewhere in the process of deconstruction in America, there are five passionate followers of Jesus meeting him every day. Hmm. Like that's the ratio Hmm. because the church is exploding around the world. And so uh, I think there's something to this idea of uh, at some point we have to realize that enough has to be enough, right? Like at some point I have to come to grips with the fact I'm not going to understand everything. Now, I think there's a big difference between Jesus, I'm in, and I want to continue to learn more, Mm -hmm. versus Jesus, I need to learn more before I'm in. I think that's way different. Mm. Interesting. Um, And so if you're somebody that says, hey, I'm not sure I'm in yet, I would just say, keep exploring. Like, cool, that's awesome. Like, uh, I got good news for you. You're actually not even theologically pursuing God. He's pursuing you. You didn't love him first. He loved you first. Mm -hmm. Like millennia ago, the Bible says that before the foundations of the world, he knew your name and he was pursuing you. Um, so I, I think that's one. Um, and then I I also think that there's, uh, oftentimes you don't need, if this is not a tension you feel, you're probably not still not listening to this podcast. You probably turned it off a while ago. (laughs) Um, but if you feel this tension, I would just say, uh, tease out the tension that you feel, uh, there are good conversations for everything you wrestle with. Um, and if you don't feel it today, maybe put a pin in it and it may not be this conversation. It may be some other conversation of faith. For some people, it's around the sexual ethic of Jesus in our cultural moment, right? They go, oh my gosh, well, great news. There's some really good, thoughtful conversation around that subject um, that's pursuable. It's knowable. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think for people to be able to dig into these conversations when they're ready and when they feel necessary is really important. Um, Obviously, I'm a nerd. And so this stuff is really exciting to me and I've wanted to learn it and will keep working to learn it. Um, But not everybody, like for some people, these are not big tensions for them. Mm -hmm. And I I don't think it makes you a second-class Christian to not dig through this stuff. Mm -hmm. I think usually where it will show up for you is either someone you love who goes through a process of deconstruction or is trying to investigate faith and these come up as objections for them. And out of love for them, you'll pursue um, maybe a more nuanced understanding Mm -hmm. of these conversations or a crisis will happen in your life. And the vision you had for God will be challenged by the version of life you experience. Usually it's one of those two things mm-hmm. that will, that, that onion in your life, it will start to peel back, right? The book of Philippians says that God is faithful. He will finish the work that he started in you until the day of Christ Jesus. That this idea, Romans 8, right, before the, right after the text we were in this weekend, Paul talks about sort of the process that God those God foreknew, He justified those He justified, He sanctified those He sanctified, He glorified. We call it kind of the highway of salvation. There is no off-ramp. Like the faith development that God is doing in us, um, we want to pursue it wholeheartedly. But a loving God will not allow your faith to stagnate. One way or another, He's going to challenge
0: us to go deeper in our faith. That's great. Thanks. Yeah, of course. Cool. Yeah. Jess, anything? No. Your brain, your brain just kind of <laughs> melted. <laughs>
1: Yeah, as you were explaining that, I just I was like, huh, what kind of put me on this journey of we'll say spiritual formation? Um, and I think it was similarly, yeah, like you said, uh, I had some friends who were starting to question things, or even just like posting things on Instagram that I was like, okay, I thought we believed the same thing, but you're posting something different. Let's, I want to talk about that. And so through the commu- those communities and those people, that's where I kind of started being like okay, so you're reading these things and you're seeing these things and all of that. And that makes more sense to me than the God that I grew up knowing. And so I want to learn more about that God because that sounds better. (laughs) And so that's kind of what kickstarted my like, you know, spiritual formation for the last couple of years or so. But um, I I think that's just like a really powerful um, way to look at it. You know, just thinking like, you may not feel the, the need to dive deeper or the need to study or the need to whatever, but hopefully in some way, shape or form, something will happen where you'll just be like, Oh, I, I, okay, I need to do some work on this.
2: And, and I would say, you know, again, my caution for folks that are in this process is we have built a faith tradition oftentimes on the shoulders of a perceived all knowing tribe. That's what we've done. Mm. So these are the people we listen to. These are the books that we uh, read. Here's the voices that we trust. Mm -hmm. And everyone outside of that all-knowing tribe is the devil. Like that's, we don't Mm -hmm. say it that way, but that's sort of Mm -hmm. oftentimes the crisis of faith that we believe that's part of that house of cards. And I, I would just caution folks that if you're going through this, be alert of your tendency to trade one all-knowing tribe for another all-knowing tribe. And that may be the all-knowing tribe of your Sunday school teacher to the all-knowing tribe of that podcast, that social media account, whatever. Um, But again, just understand this all-knowing tribe probably didn't have it all right. This all-knowing tribe, just shockingly, may not all have it right as well. And I think we are often setting ourselves up for another fall. And you can watch this actually you know, I'm about to turn 40, uh, I I would say I've watched this happen at every stage of my faith development where I watch my peers who are really connected to the all-knowing tribe idea, where they just, every, let's call it two to three years, they go, that tribe was totally wrong, I found a new tribe. Mm. And they don't see it, they're having a hard time understanding because they're just in the water of it, but it's all-knowing tribe to all-knowing tribe to all-knowing tribe to all-knowing tribe, and it's like, well, maybe... Maybe there's nuance to some of this. And then in faith, here's the hard part. Maybe there's some of this we will never understand. Like maybe there's some of this that there's a gap between my perceived reality and the God of reality. Like maybe that exists. And I, I, mm-hmm. I, I think that does exist. So um, yeah, but I, I think extend grace to yourself. If you mm-hmm. go, hey, I'm, I'm just exhausted trying to get my kids up every day, get them to school, figure out work, try to pay my bills... I'm just thankful that God exists and is is somebody that that allows me to talk to Him and has secured salvation someday and an abundant life today. I'm in. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. But I hope that conversations like these this summer let you know that when and if you get to a place where this layer of your faith mm-hmm. development onion gets peeled back, you understand that underneath it is not a take it or leave it all knowing tribe view, but that there is a discussion in most of these conversations. Mm-hmm. So that's great.
0: Thanks for coming back. Of course. Thanks for <laughs> no, having har- me back. I no, it's hard
2: to do after Maui. In the new studio. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. You know, I uh, I love what I get to do. So usually yeah. when I'm gone for a while, uh, I come back energized. I get in trouble because I usually come back with some ideas. So, uh, Whoa. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pumped to see what happened. And shout out to these guys. If uh, you're looking at the studio, you don't know it, but this is a part of like a big project with a whole bunch of stuff that's yeah. come in. And so mm-hmm. it's super fun to... Be gone and come back and see what the Lord's done in people, and um, yeah, it's it's a good reminder that Menlo Church is not Phil Eubank. It never has been, never <laughs> will be, and um, you know God's been faithful to this place for 150 years. So, for me being gone for a couple of weeks, my wife reminds
0: me it's not going to fall apart. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks everyone for listening, watching, Texas. If you need anything, and we will see you next week. Bye, bye, guys. everybody.